Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. And the message entitled, The Ministry of the Gospel. And this will be part one. We'll take part two next time. Paul was in awe by all God had done for the Gentiles and was ready to break out in prayer for the Ephesians once again, as we've noted. His first prayer is in chapter 1, verse 16 through 23, that they might comprehend the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of God's power towards them. Paul will pray again as we get through with this section, beginning verse 14 down to 21. That they might avail themselves of the power of the Spirit in the inner man, trusting God for all things beyond their own abilities. And that's really what Christianity brings us to. If we could um, live life as well as we can in Christ without Christ, then what's the sense of coming to Christ? It would be no use. But we come to Christ to be able to live a life that is impossible to live apart from Christ. Whether it be in marriage, whether it be in relationships, whether it be through trials, whether it be through illnesses. So that we are to um, handle them and respond to them different than we would if we weren't Christians. We have seen that Paul had been directed by the Holy Spirit to delay his prayer in order to reveal important information about himself as the messenger of the gospel in verse 1 through 7, presenting himself through the three metaphors of a prisoner in verse 1, a steward in verse 2 through 6, and a servant in verse 7. Paul, having dealt with the uh, messenger of the gospel, focusing on his person, now deals with the ministry of the gospel, focusing on the content of the gospel from verse 8 to 13. Remember, verse 2 to 13 is one long sentence in the Greek. So what we have in verse 8 through 10 is the ministry of the gospel for Paul. And it's characterized by three things. Let me read here. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see... What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The ministry of the gospel for Paul is characterized by the following three things. First, we have the Evangelizing of the Gentile in verse 8. Second, we have the unveiling of oneness to Jew and Gentile in verse 9. And then thirdly, the enlightening of the angels about the Jew and Gentile, the oneness in verse 10. And so... The evangelizing of the Gentiles comes first in verse 8. That was the primary, the first step of his ministry. Notice the Apostle Paul declared his humble, high privilege in ministry. To me, when less than the least of all the saints. Paul was genuinely shocked over the astonished fact of the grace of God over his life. He stated to me, which is emphatic in the Greek, showing this verse is in opposition to the previous one. In verse 7, notice, the phrase to me deals with the grace imparted by the effective working of, his, of God's Spirit by no merit of his own. In verse 8, the phrase to me deals with the preaching of the gospel in the astonishment that God would call him to me. Paul stated his insignificance among the saints. Notice that. Who am least of the least of all the saints. 
You would think for an educated man that Paul wouldn't speak like that. <laughs> but Paul realizes the incredible privilege that sometimes Paul just compounds words and even um, makes words that are not found anywhere else to describe the gospel and the effects of it. The Greek scholars say the phrase is a unique combination of comparative and superlative here. The word literally means leaster or more least. <laughs> this is the only time it's found in the New Testament. And this is not false humility, but outright genuine humility. You know, there's times when people say, well, no, 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 it's just, no I'm, not, I'm, I'm not that nice. Or, you know, oh, no, no. It's not. But, you know, it's, 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 it's pious stuff. You know, it's reverse. It's, it's false humility. Paul is not um, saying this, and he can't be accused of this. As you look to his life and you look at the letters that he's written and what he says, the comparative superlative is to all the saints. Notice that. Paul considered himself the least of all believers in Christ. Paul was not speaking about his spiritual qualification or ineffectiveness regarding the gospel. For he just stated the grace given him was by the effective working of his power as a minister. In verse 7. Notice the perspective of being the least of all the saints has to rest in his past life before Christ. Even though it is not stated here. In Acts chapter 7 verse 58 you remember that Paul gave approval for the stoning of Stephen, they laid his clothes at the feet of young Saul. As Stephen said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Saul was making havoc of the church. Paul told Agrippa in Acts 26, 10 and 11, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my voice against them, Stephen being one of them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's when he was going to Damascus. He was doing that. Galatians 1.13, Paul says that he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, I am chief of sinners. Now we know he's not talking about his past sins because he's forgiven and justified. But we do see that what he did to the church of Jesus Christ and the Christians just marked him tremendously and he considered himself not even worthy to be used of God. I don't mean that he lived in condemnation because I don't believe that. He's the one that wrote, there's no condemnation, those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But he truly sensed his unworthiness for the position that God had called him. And this is always good whenever God is going to use us and when God um, directs and guides us and when he does use us and people are edified and people are benefited that we always remember that because it's so easy to get caught up in yourself and to think yeah you're the hottest thing since ice cream and um, it, it doesn't take long to be a Christian to be around people who God uses and how they get carried away with their person, especially if God gives, by His grace, um, real fast growth in the church or great success overnight to a pastor or to an individual. And, um, and then they find themselves in an arena of uh, demands and um, compliments and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and it, it can go to your head if, you, if you're not careful.
And yet Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, that his apostleship was not inferior to the other apostles. He said, for I am the least of apostles, the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and this grace towards me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So while he's saying here in Ephesians that he considered himself unworthy of the call because of what took place, yet in, to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he recognizes that he is the least even of the apostles, yet he's not inferior to them. So he uses still his humility, but he does not shirk back from the authority God gave him as one equal to any of the apostles. So the context is a little different. But he still uses the same kind of phrase. In 2 Corinthians 12, 11, he says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent or chief apostles, though I am nothing. Paul always qualifies it. That in spite of what God did through him and for him and everything else, and how, he, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. Remember, in the gospel, Jesus says, when you've done all that you should, say, I'm an unprofitable servant. As you look around the Christians or ministries in the United States, there is such arrogance and such self-adulation that goes on that it must grieve God. As if any of us have any ability to make anything good or to bring about any good results in people's lives <laughs> or if it's by our own doing. What an insult to heaven. Again, if we could do this on our own, then why do we have to become Christians? Why do we have to study the Word of God and be filled with the Spirit of God? Why do we have to die to self if we could all do it naturally? The point is we can't. Notice the Apostle Paul declared his earthly commissioned ministry next. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The declaration this grace was given points back to the gift of grace of God in verse 7. qualify Paul for ministry and to enable Paul in ministry. The commission was specific to preach among the Gentiles. The word preach, we get our word um, evangelized from it. It's good news, good tithings. And the purpose for that is to be saved. No one can be saved or forgiven without being evangelized. The proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. How will they hear if a preacher is not sent? The word is used for Jesus preaching after he died and rose from the dead to both Jew and Gentile in chapter 2, verse 16 of Ephesians. The scripture says, but the Lord said, to him, and this is an axe, Ananias. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Acts 9.15. Very specific call Paul had. The majority of those saved in the first century were Gentiles, as you know, not Jews. They were the exception. At first, they were all Jews. All Jewish apostles, right? But then from then on, it just decreased in terms of the Jewishness of it, and Gentile took over. And it's about the same today. There's very few Jews that are born again, though there's some. The emphasis of the Greek grammar is on Gentiles. To do this for the Gentiles, Paul being their special appointed apostle. 
to the Romans, he said in Romans 11:13, "For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." First Timothy 2:7 to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, 2 Timothy 1.11. When he was writing to the Galatians in chapter 2, 7 and 8, he says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised, meaning the Jew, had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised, meaning the Jew, was to Peter, for he was he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also works effectively in me towards the Gentiles. So Paul very clearly shares with them that Peter was given the ministry to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Now, didn't mean that Paul never spoke to any Jews because we know he went to the synagogue first. But they understood their specific ministries. It didn't mean they ignored the other aspect of it, but that was the calling that God had on them. Now, the content is the unsearchable riches of Christ, notice. The word means what cannot be searched out, comprehended, or untraceable, literally. It is used of God's wisdom in Job 5, 9 and 9, 10. The word appears only this time in the New Testament, Romans 11.33 kind of puts it in the right perspective. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways or his judgments and his ways past finding out. So this is the only time we find it again. So you have it here and in Romans 11.33. The word is synonymous with the word mystery of Christ, unsearchable riches. The mystery of Christ in chapter 3, verse 4 and 9. The unsearchable riches of Christ have to do with his person, his prophetic office, as we've seen already before. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet without sin, Matthew one twenty tells us. Jesus is God, born of a virgin who became man. His name was Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew one twenty three, fulfilling Isaiah 7.14 Jesus is the last Adam who would undo the mess of the first Adam 1 Corinthians 15.45 Jesus died in our place and paid the price for our sins He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him 2 Corinthians 5.21 1 John 2.2 The propitiation for our sins not ours alone but the whole world Jesus is the only way to God. He said it himself in John fourteen six, And no one can come to the Father but through him. Jesus alone can forgive sins. Throughout the book of Acts 531, 1338, 2618. We've seen it in Ephesians 1.7, 1.18, Colossians 1.14. That's all it is. There is no other way that anybody's sins can be forgiven. Now, you can run from sin, you can justify your sin, you can explain your sin away, you can always, you know, say it wasn't your fault or whatever it is, but whatever it is, it's your sin. And you have to deal with it. And sins are kind of like, um, like little weights. And though in themselves, they don't seem to be that big, you know, you have two and a half weight, five plate, 10 pound plate and so on and so forth and if you mount up you know two and a half pound plates are not that big you know no big deal but you start adding them in 2 10 20 30 40 50 you get to the point where these little things are heavy and so as you walk through life that's what happens to us and God has created us in such a way that our spiritual and mental being cannot handle that weight. It destroys us. Destroys us mentally. It destroys us physically. And it wreaks havoc on our life. 
That's why so many people commit suicide. That's why so many people, I believe, have a lot of mental problems. Now, that doesn't mean that any, everybody who has mental problems, Alzheimer's, all that, they're all, you know, because there's, it's not, I'm not saying that. But I do believe that a lot of the diseases come because of guilt and because of sin. Jesus is the only Savior and mediator. He told that very clearly to the woman of Samaria. I am he who speaks to you. The Messiah who you say is going to come. I'm the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 I'm the only one that has offered one sacrifice for all. Look at Hebrews continually. Paul illustrates this first point vividly in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. Listen carefully. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who, condemn, who command the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. The greatest privilege as a Christian is not to be a container of the Holy Spirit. It's great to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's great that our bodies are the temple of the Spirit, but that's not the greatest privilege. The greatest privilege is to be a vessel that God would work through. Because if I think it's the container, then I'm only thinking of me. A vessel, God works in me first, and then through me to others. You want to make sure that you're a Sea of Galilee that gets water from the Mount Hermon and two other tributaries, and then it gives out, but... What it gives out goes down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea doesn't give out, so it's, that's why it's called dead. <laughs> it's all about the sea that holds everything in. And so that's the greatest privilege, a channel, a vessel. The very clear teaching of the, our late pastor Chuck Smith regarding the ministry was one of high privilege that no one could merit to be boasting about, but to be exercised as a servant constantly. From 1973, when I listened to his tapes till the day he died, he emphasized over and over again. He constantly taught about serving and caring for the people of God and not exalting oneself above the people. He exposed those who fleeced the flock of God for money instead of feeding the flock with God's word. He was always open to God to raise up and you have people used to preach the gospel and he gave them opportunity. Many of the Calvary Chapel pastors are a great example of that. He warned the pastors always about becoming hirelings. Ezekiel 34, 2 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flocks? Yes. This was Pastor Chuck's heart. And yet as he used to mock and ridicule and point out people from the pulpit, now it's almost a prohibition by many of them. (laughs) Very few do the same. They've become dogs that can't bark. Shepherds that feed themselves. Again, success in time does things that are not good for us if we're not careful. 
the most valuable content that is printed on paper and electronically is the Bible. More precious is the gospel of Jesus Christ than anything else. Gold and silver, forget it. The word of God. Men, women, and children are lost, dead in trespasses and sins that we see in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And if they die right now, they enter eternity lost. Never to have another opportunity. Men and women are under the wrath of God, John 3.36 tells us, and yet so many people live in such a way as that they have it all together and it's going to be forever and there's nothing wrong. God loves the world of lost humanity so that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but everlasting life. John 3.16 is very clear. And for that reason, we, we take every opportunity to minister the gospel when we come across people who don't know Christ. Uh, for that reason, we, we study the word of God so that we're better equipped to give an answer to every man for the reason, the hope, the lies in the word means and fear in 1 Peter 3.15. God has chosen the preaching of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, to be the way by which you and I are in awe of God and that we walk humble before him. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. The ministry of Paul meant the evangelizing of the Gentile. The Gentile missionary journeys did not come from Jerusalem. <laughs> Three of them are recorded. Paul to the Gentiles. Notice secondly the unveiling of oneness to Jew and Gentile comes next in verse 9. The Apostle Paul declared his responsibility to, in ministry was to reveal that Jew and Gentile were one body. Now, he's already mentioned this, but he's hidden it here in transition to the next. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Paul was to make known to the Jew and Gentile the same message. It's what he's saying. The phrase to... Make see means to cast light upon. The error is active makes it effective. In other words, this being the work of the Holy Spirit to the hearer, Paul being merely the instrument. Second Corinthians 4 4. Lest the light of the glorious gospel not shine upon them. Satan is there, the God of the world, trying to hinder. It's through the gospel. You and I are the mere instruments to communicate that. Jesus is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. John 1, 9 tells us. He himself said, I'm the light of the world in John 8, 12. When the scripture says that you and I are the light and salt of the earth, we are the vessels to communicate that. But he is the literal source of light. We are the recipients of that light. The implication, notice, is that it was present in the scriptures, but veiled until the prophetic fulfillment, as will be clearly stated next. Paul did not preach from a New Testament Bible. Sometimes we forget that. Paul preached from the Old Testament scriptures. All he has was the Old Testament scrolls. There was no New Testament. <laughs> None at all. It's being written. The ones needed to be enlightened were all. Notice that. Everyone, anyone is the word. This would fall into two categories of people. Jews and Gentiles. The third category is the church of God. We'll get to that. That's the way God sees the world. Jew, Gentile, and the church of God. 
in the church of God is going to be Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. So Paul was to make known that Jew and Gentile were one in Christ. This is what is indicated by the phrase, the fellowship of the mystery. Fellowship koinonia means association, participation, community, complete oneness. It's a rich word. It's even used for contribution, for money, for tithes. The term mystery, mysterion, as we've seen, means to, to move, to shut the mouth. Meaning to have something hidden secretly before it was used for the initiation rites of the Gnostics and other religious, pagan religions. But whenever it's used here, as we've seen, it's always talking about something that was previously hidden, veiled, but now made known. So all the mysteries that are in the New Testament, when you find this word, as we've seen, are things that previously were veiled, but now are unveiled and they're clearly seen. So there's no longer any secret thing regarding these mysteries. This message was foreign and offensive to the Jew when they heard it, who considered the Gentiles unclean, created by God to fuel the fires of hell. They just couldn't tolerate it. This message of Jew and Gentile being one in Christ was opposed by the Jews. If you remember in the first church council, as Peter, Paul, and James were there in Acts 15, and Paul had come down with Silas and others from Antioch, because the Jews were teaching that you had to uh, be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. And, and Peter and James and them got them and said, no way. And they sent letters out to all the uh, Gentile missions and said, you know, if Jews come by and they trouble you, just tell them they'll go take a walk. Uh, we, uh, we believe you're saved by grace through faith. You don't have to keep the Mosaic law or be circumcised. Just keep yourself from fornication, from blood, from strangled things. And if you do that, you'll do well. Simple. This message marked Paul as a traitor unworthy to live by the mob of Jews in the temple in Acts 22:22. 22, 22. From the steps of the Antonius fortress, he began to preach and he got his, his life wish. Lord, because remember the Lord told him when he first came to Jerusalem, get out of here, they're not going to receive you. Oh no, but Lord, get out of here. They almost killed him. And now he's in the, in the temple and he's got his wish. I, I was one of them. They know me. I, 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 I grew up with many of these guys. If I can only get a chance, and, and Paul did, and he's sharing, they're all listening attentively, speaking in the Hebrew until he says, and I was sent to the Gentiles. That's it. Everything broke loose. Dust, air, kill that guy. You see, even Paul thought that he could communicate the gospel through a natural ability. He found that he couldn't. The words can be communicated through natural speech. But it's the openness of the heart that the Holy Spirit turns light on when that person has an open heart. It has nothing to do with your brain. It has to do with your heart where you're broken before God. And he's the one that does it. So whenever people get saved and the gift of evangelism is such an incredible gift that we get so caught up by the man and then the man gets caught up with himself. It's God who does it. If God removed that gift from that man, that man would be very, very embarrassed at the altar call. Every time. Because no one would respond. It's God who does it. Not the man. Notice 9 still. The Apostle Paul declared his responsibility to reveal that the fellowship of the mystery of Jew and Gentile being one body was the eternal plan of God which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. 
The economy of grace and dispensation which Paul was called to administer was part of God's plan and purpose from the beginning of the age and ages. Time. Ephesians 3, 2 through 4 has told us that. Particularly verse 5. It was not an afterthought. It was not plan B because plan A, Israel rejected the Messiah. <laughs> God wasn't biting his nails. Oh, now what do I do? I go, okay, let me think of something. Let me get myself out of trouble here. The origin of the plan and purpose had been hidden, underline that, in God. The phrase indicates the sovereign mind, will, counsel, and plan of God. The word hidden simply means to be secret or concealed in its clarity and understanding until the appointed time. You as a parent do the same with your children as they're growing up. There are certain things that your child will not be old enough to understand. And at times not even old enough to even consider. So you protect them. When they ask you about sex and they're five years old, you kind of change the subject or give a general thing, something like that, protecting them. It's veiled. When they get to a certain age, it's different. Then it's fully disclosed. At that particular time, at that appointed time, at the appropriate time, this is the same thing here. In fact, Ephesians 3 here, verse 5 and 6. Let me see here, I've messed up. Went back too far. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And if you go through the Old Testament, you see it from Genesis, through the Psalms, through Hosea, through all of them. The message of the Gentiles to be saved, but not clearly that the Jew and Gentile would be one. For from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, it speaks about the Savior of the world, the seed of the woman, and that's all. And then Genesis 12.3 says... To Abraham and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Gentiles were included. But that the Gentiles and Jew would be one. Not two different congregations, two different people, but one. That was not clearly revealed until the New Testament. And the word God that refers to the Father. The distinction between the two persons cannot be missed. In God and through Jesus Christ. The first and third person, the second person. Now, God the Father is said to be the one who created all things through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no um, contradiction for all three persons the Godhead are God and were involved in the creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth without void and form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded or hovered over the face of the water. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit there. And then later on, we are told in Colossians 1.16 that Jesus Christ created all things. So you have all three aspects. And there are many, many scriptures without contradiction. Just as the three persons in one God, there's no contradiction. Um, doesn't speak about three gods, but one person, three persons in the one God. Um, and so here, the name Jesus in the title of Christ verifies the incarnation of God. Who became man, John 1, 1, 1, 14, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Um, he emptied himself of his um, uh, glory, never of his deity, and uh, took on the form of a servant. 
obedient to the death of the cross. And again, the word mystery hidden in God here was that the Jew and Gentile have the same access to God, accepted the same way, and comprise the new community of God in Christ, His church, His bride, no longer Jew or Gentile, but the new man in Christ Jesus. In fact, um, in chapter 2, 13 through 16, he said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to, by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, continued, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, meaning Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So here you have Paul eating with Gentiles, Gentiles eating with Paul, and there's no hatred, there's no animosity. In fact, the Jews had more animosity towards Paul than the Gentiles did. In Colossians 2, 19 and 22, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. One household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into, holy, into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you have the same family, the same building, the same spirit, the same church. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known, in the, uh, to the sons of men, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. Ephesians 2, 3, 2 through 6. He's mentioned it also in Romans sixteen twenty five, Colossians 1, 26. Colossians and Ephesians were written at the same time. You have a lot of similarities, but the focus is a little different. They're two of the four prison epistles. It's like unveiling a statue that I've mentioned often that has never been seen and all of a sudden the cover is removed and you see it clearly for what it is. And that's exactly what God did. As he gave the gospel to Paul, to Peter, to all of them. It was not known before. That's why the Jews were so offended at the preaching of Jesus Christ. There are many Jews who still today have um, their eyes blinded and they can't see Jesus in the scriptures. Paul the Apostle, um, you know, he loved the Jew as a nation. He himself was a Jew and he writes in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 his lament and he wishes himself a curse. But, you know, that God doesn't swap people. Each person has to make a decision for themselves. But in 2 Corinthians three fourteen through 16, he says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, the mo when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul was a perfect example. He witnessed that. He couldn't see Jesus. He hated Jesus. And the veil was removed on the Damascus Road. There are many in the church today that are allowing so many cultural things to divide them instead of understanding their oneness in Christ. They're allowing the culture to divide them by their race. Whether you're black, brown, white, yellow, red, whatever. 
and the politicians and the educators are a bunch of manipulators and they understand the nature of man, the pride of man, the arrogance of man, how they love to be catered to and stroked. And so they play the game. And Christians fall prey to this kind of stuff. And don't focus their oneness in Christ Jesus. The feminist and homosexual progressive worldview is also being used, and some Christians fall prey to this. Rather than making a stand according to the Bible. So they side with the worldly view and still call themselves Christians. It's impossible. The indoctrination of not dividing over doctrine, but simply to be united in love. It's one of the greatest deceptions. If you don't have absolute certain truth that you stand for, and you're just willing to get along and to be compatible with people under the guise of love, without any boundaries or fences or doors, you're going to be destroyed and so are they. And you're actually an enemy of God. Because God puts doors, walls, and barriers of absolute truth. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. It doesn't mean that we just cut people off first time. No. Somebody's kind of unscriptural, whether it be ignorant or arrogantly, and we, we, we confront them in love. We say, hey, listen, this is what the scriptures say. Do you realize that you're really going against God? Do you realize that you're contradicting the scriptures? And if they can see it, great. You gain a brother or a sister. But if they do not and insist on their error, it's very clear that we are to be more adamant towards them. And there comes a point where we have to sever fellowship because of what, depending on the doctrine, what it is, that they can hurt others or even do violence and damage to the very doctrine of the scriptures that are very important for salvation or holy living for God. So it's very, very clear. So, the ministry of Paul dealt with is the unveiling of the oneness to Jew and Gentile. Removing that veil, he being the instrument, not the one who removes it, but he's that vessel. Then notice, thirdly, comes the enlightening of the angels about the Jew and Gentile. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul revealed that angels do not know everything. Only God does. Angels are not eternal. They had a beginning and were created by God. Uh, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. The angels were created before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Psalm 148, 2 and 5 says, Praise him, all his saints, or angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. The number of angels is innumerable. Daniel, seeing the throne of God, says, A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened in Daniel 7.10. That's a lot of angels. <laughs> Hebrews says, Innumerable company. 
myriads, we get the word, meaning 10,000 times 10,000, which would be 100 million. In other words, without number. Paul says to the Colossians, For by him all things are created that are in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, all things were created through him and for him. We'll see those, those phrases, principalities and powers, are related to angels. There's good and there's bad angels, as we'll see. Angels are spirits being... Um, but they have no physical bodies. They're spirit beings. And yet... Even though they're ministering spirits of the earth of salvation, Psalm 104, verse 4, and then Hebrews 1, 7 and 14 tells us, they're in service to God to do his bidding and to serve us, believers. And yet the angels are described with physical features as wings, feet, faces. <laughs> angels appeared to Abraham and to Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 34, 7 says. Zechariah 4, 1 says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. The angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph about Mary's pregnancy in Matthew 1, 20. And told fear not to take her as your wife. That which is conceived in her is the Holy Spirit. Some have even entertained angels unaware, we're told in Hebrews 13 too. But they're primarily spirit beings and they always appear in physical form as a man. Never has an angel appeared as a woman. Not one time in scripture. All male. Now notice the Apostle Paul revealed that God had in mind for angels to witness the wisdom of God in real time to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Paul gave the intentional purpose of God's will here. To the intent introduces the purpose clause. The word is in the Greek, that is henna. Whenever you find henna, it's a purpose clause. The time is now during the dispensation of grace that he's been talking about during the fellowship of this mystery. Paul indicated what God wanted to make known, which is the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold means variegated or multicolored, and it's used for a multicolored cloth. Only this time in the New Testament is it found. In the ideas of diversified wisdom of God, that is awe-inspiring. I mean, sometimes people get in awe of a person who's really wise, and they rattle off some stuff, or they give some great response. You go, wow. But... As you look through the scriptures of the wisdom of God, as God gave wisdom to Solomon, the Queen of Sheba said, I had to come and half of what was told me was not enough. God, all wise. Diversified wisdom of God, awe-inspiring. In this case, how God worked out the plan for Jew and Gentile to be one body, one new man. So the angels are, are looking at this thing, how it's unfolding. They go, I, I can't believe he did it that way. They didn't know about it. They're checking it out. From that first day of resurrection, they began to see it for themselves in real time. The word wisdom, Sophia, is the ability to come to the final decision based on the knowledge and understanding, comprehension of something. God, his wisdom is perfect. Every time he makes a decision, it's the wisest choice. You can come up with a better choice. 
this aspect of God's wisdom was merely one of many. Notice this fear might be made known. Or the phrase here might be made known. It means to make known, but there's no doubt, not might, but that it will be made known. The verb placed first in the Greek and the subject wisdom placed last makes both of them emphatic in the Greek. Both of them. To make known wisdom. The wisdom of God. Not man, but that men should be in awe of God to work through man. Notice Paul identified the channel God chose to use by the church. Not just some elite people, but the church. Ecclesia, those called out of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, comprised of Jew and Gentile, brothers and sisters without hostility, justified, forgiven of all their sins in Christ Jesus. And so Paul introduces the audience Who's the audience of all this is being seen to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? The good angels. (laughs) They're seeing it unfold for the first time. All those, all these were used by the Gnostics, uh, uh, principalities and powers for their um, angelic uh, archangels and everything like that that they worshipped. Principality means the first ones, the leaders, those men of high office and position in the world it's used for. This also includes the first order of angels, good and bad angels, because through the rebellion that's come in, he's already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 21, he'll mention it again in chapter 6, verse 12, the warfare. Powers exousiad means delegated authority, those men who are under the authority of other men, and used for government also in Romans 13, 1 and 2. But again, in Ephesians 1, 21 and 6, 12, for the angels that um, are against us. So the context will tell you whether it is principalities and powers that are evil or good. In fact, Peter tells us that angels desire to look into and see what God had planned in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. We're told that angels rejoice over one sinner in heaven in Luke 15.10. The apostles were spectacles to the angels in 1 Corinthians 4.9. As the angels are looking down. So in a way we can say that angels see us, but we don't see them in heaven. Now... It's very evident that if the angels can look down and see the manifested thing. Now, that doesn't mean that our dead loved ones can see us. And don't let anybody use Hebrews chapter 12 at the end there and going into 13, okay? That um, this great company, that great cloud of witnesses, that's not our loved ones. There's no way, they would be heartbroken to see how dumb we are. And they would be heartbroken if they saw our suffering. But angels can see that says nothing about our loved ones. Okay? It's just assumed, which is wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. I'm surprised when people, people get bummed out. They, many people ask me, you know, actually, you think that there's, there, there's animals in heaven? Will my dog be there? I go, no. You go, oh, oh, are you kidding me? And we get so earthbound. Heaven's for people. Now there's going to be animals in the millennial kingdom. But, you know, nothing said about heaven. The apostles were spectacles. How they were treated by man as the angels looked down. As you and I go through testings and trials and we do dumb things, I can just, they go, what's he doing? Why doesn't he just pray? 
Why, why doesn't he trust what he just read? And, and they just, they can see, Peter says. In fact, it says they stoop down. You know, like when you want to see something, you want to make sure you look at it. You remember Paul, the ship, they're out there at sea. He said, for there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. There's no way that angel would know that unless God told him to give him that message. Because angels are not all-knowing. They're just messengers. <laughs> there are good and bad angels in the spiritual warfare due to the rebellion, as I pointed in Ephesians 6.12. The rebellion, as you find it in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The bad angels serve Satan and the faithful angels or loyal serve the Lord. And therefore, we are in spiritual warfare in this auditorium right now. There's good and bad angels here. There's warfare going on. If God would open our eyes, we'd blow our mind. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are various classes of angels, as you know, regular angels that we mentioned in Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits of the earth's salvation. There's cherubims that we first find in the Garden of Eden with the sword around. Then you find them in the, on the throne of the Ark of God on the top in the throne of God. Exodus 25, Ezekiel chapter 1. Seraphims, they have uh, six wings, two they fly, two they cover their head, their face, two their feet. It's only found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, nowhere else. You have... Archangels. Only one is said to be an archangel, and that is Michael in Jude, verse 9. There's only one chapter. And so the various ranks of angels. But then you have the different categories in terms of the ranks there in Ephesians 6 principalities, powers, dominions. Are you in awe of the wisdom of God as He unfolds it? from day to day in your life and the life of others and the life of the church as you spend months and years in the church and you see what he's done and what he does. How about in the living world affairs of the unbeliever as you see the nations falling in line with the prophetic announcements that will take place. Are you in awe of his wisdom? No one can put it better than Paul. I'll read it again. His response is to God's ability to save sinners. That's the context. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, Romans eleven thirty three. Wow. The ministry of Paul resulted in the enlightening of the angels about the oneness of Jew and Gentile. Such a clear message. Such a necessary message. It's been clouded today in the church. We are more confused and more fractured than ever before in America as a nation and the church because the gospel is now being preached and taught clearly and Christians are compromising and giving in to the world's views this was the ministry of the gospel of Paul the evangelizing of the Gentiles the unveiling of oneness to the Jew and Gentile and the enlightening of the angels about the oneness of the Jew and Gentile. So God's concerned with those on earth, and he's also concerned with those that are in heaven. 
He lays it all out. We would never know this unless he told us. Now, if you and I came up with that, it'd be, it'd be, a, it'd, it'd be an exaggeration. It'd be an absolute lie. But when God, by the Spirit, anointed Paul to reveal this, it's absolute truth. You can repeat this to everybody as absolute truth. The ministry of Paul. Father, thank you for your grace, your love. Deal with our hearts and thank you for your goodness, Lord. We pray, Lord, you would open our eyes to the things that are around us, Lord. Help us not to be distracted with all the distractive activity that's going on in our nation and the world. Pray, Lord, we would just be filled with the knowledge of your will, be filled with the power of your spirit, and that you would have your way with us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins and rose from the dead as we've taught tonight, then the Bible says you can be saved. Will you agree that you are under God's wrath and that he alone died for your sins and that he alone can justify you before God? And that's by grace through faith, not because you deserve it, not because you're better than anybody else. If that is your decision, maybe you're over the internet, then this is your prayer of repentance to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.